Welcome to Practice Freedom. What if you could hang out with owners and founders from all sorts of healthcare private practices, having rich conversations about their successes and their failures, and then take an insight or two to inspire your own growth? Each week on Practice Freedom, we take an in-depth look at how to get the most out of both the clinical side and the business side of the practice, get the most out of your people, and most of all, how to live the healthy life that you deserve. I'm Mark Henderson Leary. I'm a business coach and an entrepreneurial operating system implementer. I have a passion that everyone should feel in control of their life. And so what I do is I help you get control of your business. Part of how I do that is by letting you listen in on these conversations in order to make the biggest impact in your practice and ultimately live your best life. Let's get started. All right, so this is Amir Krasnos, I kind of know pretty well, and I, I think you're gonna enjoy this, but th- this is a different conversation than some of the other ones, and I'll dig into that. But before I dig into the kind, con- I wanna get some housekeeping out of the way. I'm gonna ask for the taboo subject of subscription and liking and all the stuff that goes with that, because I think there's a misconception. And the misconception is that if you click like or subscribe, that somehow you're on a list somewhere. And I think one of the misconceptions is that people are just doing it all the time and it's racking right up. That's not what's happening. This community is not a teenager community with millions of folks. This is a small community of high value individuals who are learning from each other. And I want you to know that you make it easy to help the community grow and be better by doing simple things like subscribing, sharing. Uh, giving us feedback and it's no small impact and there is no other ask and and I am not watching you. There's no guilt, right? So like if you don't do it, I will never know. But if you do find value in this content and you want more and you want it to be accessible for other people because you're a giving type person, you want to make sure that other people get access to it to make the community better, then it's such a small thing that has such a relatively high value to subscribe and share and all that kind of stuff. So but that's just my ask. And just being transparent because it makes a difference for us. So let's intro this conversation with Amir. Amir is just a good example of an entrepreneurial leader. He's in, in healthcare in particular as somebody who has a practice, a two-site, four-doctor optometry practice, but also was asked to step into what I would call a visionary role in the Vision Source organization, which is a franchise. And we unpack what that means to be a franchise uh, to some extent, organization that is something like 5,000 doctors and 3,100 locations or practices rather that all sort of subscribe to the same community and, and want to pursue the Vision Source mission. So he's speaking as visionary and technically his title is chief medical officer. And that is to you know really carry the torch from the founder in a lot of ways to speak on behalf of all those doctors. The founder, Glenn Ellisor, fantastic guy, just a truly uh, great guy and a, and a very meaningful, powerful mission which leaves Amir, you know, trying to fill some big shoes and make a big difference in a community. But what I want you to listen to, this conversation is very different than the last couple of interviews. I want you to notice how little we talk about profitability, how little we talk about the metrics of the business and accountability and details of the mechanics. It's really about the purpose. And I want you to imagine what kind of obstacles a guy with this kind of passion and commitment to the vision can handle and what that role is. And that's the visionary role, right? So thinking back to yourself, if you're in, if you're the visionary or if you're, in, if you're not the visionary in the organization, what does, what does that role do? And it's really that ability to conquer obstacles and keep moving and manage that infinite game of ups and downs that, uh, that every industry, every organization has to do with at some point. So listen for that. And just, I hope you get a lot out of that. And give us some feedback after that. And here you go. Have fun. Hey, quick little encouragement here. One of the things that's so valuable for us and yet so hard to get is good feedback. 
everybody's got it. Everybody says it out loud or in their head, but such a small amount of it makes it to me. So we're doing everything we can to make it as easy as possible to get it to us. So in the show notes, there's a link. You can click it and you can send us a voice memo. So please do that. Send us that feedback. We want everything. Ask us questions, whatever you got. We're going to keep the conversation going. We're going to continue to obsess on making it on ways to make it easier to get the feedback to and from us because I want this to be an ongoing conversation with everybody. And so uh, I guess two things, bear with us as we figure that out, but also please pressure test the system and, and use the tools and send us some information and send us some feedback and, and give us all your feedback along the way. And if for some reason, well, for any reason, you're finding it hard to get in touch with us or give us feedback, please send us that and uh, we'll figure out how to meet you where you are because this is an important conversation. So again, show notes, look for the link to send us a voice memo or anything you find access to. Shoot us an email, go for the website, but certainly uh, sending the voice memos are really cool and fun because I can reply directly to you. Uh, look forward to that feedback. Just a quick reminder, uh, the point of this show is to help create, help you create a profitable, healthy healthcare practice with a great culture, making a huge impact that gives you the life you deserve, that best life, that best impact, whatever that is. However, if you still feel like you've got so many challenges, you wouldn't even know where to start. That actually just makes you normal. And so... That's why the first step in the practice freedom process is to choose and implement what we call a business operating system. Now, I am an EOS guy, the entrepreneurial operating system. That's the system I've chosen. I believe in it. I believe it is the best job. It's simplifying complex problems. And so if you are considering the journey to practice freedom that's the first step. And if you'd like to figure out if EOS is the right fit for you, please reach out, hit us at practicefreedom.com slash schedule to schedule a quick call with me to help decide whether or not EOS could be the right step for you. So Amir, man, it's so good to talk to you about this subject. I know you're feeling kind of like, What's about to happen? What's Mark about to ask, ask me? I've given you kind of the, the briefing, but I think the impact here, I think that the foundation here is why does private practice matter? Why are you so passionate about the impact that private practice can make at scale? Thanks for having me, Mark. I, uh, you know, when you asked me to be on this and knowing the kind of person you are and the thinker you are, it was somewhat intimidating. But at the same time, I thought, <laughs> I thought you know what, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun because it's a topic that is honestly has become my passion in my career is how do I serve and protect private practice and why? So to answer that why, it's pretty clear to me that at the heart of it all is the advancement of the care that's provided to our patients, thinking relative to outcomes. So if a doctor-patient relationship is preserved and if doctors are at the end of the day completely beholden to the patient who's sitting in their chair in every way, with, as entrepreneurs, as doctors, as providers, as facility leaders, if they realize that the end user is sitting in front of them in the chair or on the bed, what I believe is that that's the purest form of patient outcome focus. It's when you realize there's a relationship with this person in your community that you 
want to serve, not for the next so many dollars, but for the next 15, 20 years of their lives. And you know that their well-being and quality of life is in your hands in some way. So when we think about outcomes, I think about the outcome being, is a patient best served? Is the profession advanced because of the entrepreneurial spirit of wanting to do more, be better, to deliver more value to our patients and our communities? And then, frankly, is the community better because of doctors who are part of the fabric of that community? And then lastly, does the practice outcome end up being better? Meaning you can serve more, you can grow, you can have a facility that has more doctors serving that community better. I mean, ultimately it it matters because I believe the entrepreneurial spirit drives the quality of the care that's provided. I'm so excited. I'm overwhelmed with so many thoughts and ideas because (laughs) what you're doing from the vision source perspective as a franchisor does something that is unique. And I think people think of franchises as scaling machines for profitability and quick start business in a box. That's what people think of franchises as usually somewhat generified. But having been involved in the organization deeply enough to know there's a real passion that drives this and that what we're doing or what you're doing is making it easy for people who aren't wired for entrepreneurship, aren't wired for running a business from a business mind to provide healthcare outcomes in the context of entrepreneurial thinking, the vision source leadership and Glenn's passion, now your passion to lead the organization is that there is an impact to be made here. I mean, I've never gotten a sense from Glenn that he was like, man, I just needed to make more money. <laughs> you know? just, Not at all. That was never, that was never anything he was trying to do. It was like, there is unmet need. And if we can get out of the way, we can, like you said, advance the profession we can increase the science, increase the care, we can, and we can make it accessible, and we can give these doctors who aren't wired for all the aspects of running a business a way to make money, live a good life, and build something of value that they could leave to their kids or sell or do something like that. There's a lot in that, right? There is. And I'm going to challenge you right off the bat because we're such good friends and tell you an interesting epiphany I had. I thought exactly the way you just did, which is Vision Source is a franchise by name, but it was really designed to enable business improvement for doctors who are traditionally not geared to be more than just providers in the lane. They are not thinking like entrepreneurs. They can't be CEOs and the lead doctor just in the practice. And that was the profile of many of us. And I believe that to be true. And interestingly enough, Over the last five years, as I've really been involved in the leadership level vision source, one of the things that I've come to realize, and I said this from the stage at exchange at our main conference each year, where we have 3,000 people in the crowd, I realized there's an interesting truth about the vision source member that I want to share with you. The vision source member is someone who says, I am willing to give first. I'm willing to trust I'm willing to sign a 217-page document and guarantee that document personally. I'm willing to give you a small percentage of my hard-earned dollars to be part of something because I believe that this 33-year-old organization has a proven track record of making practices better. 
of uniting us, of giving me a sense of community that is real and not fabricated, that I know that the people in this thing have common interests and beliefs and values. So they're givers by nature, and that is so critically important because what I'm about to say next is actually the X factor. Mm-hmm. A lot of doctors are givers. That's not unique to being a doctor. You can imagine that's true. So then what is it about the Vision Source member that makes them so successful if we just compare them to the market? And it's actually their business acumen. Hmm. I went back and started looking at the Vision Source members' practices and the way they thirst for knowledge. And it was so evident at the end of the exchange when we did our member survey. And one of the biggest reasons why people show up at the exchange is because they want access to new information, better information that helps them better their practices and improve their profitability. So it's interesting. It's like, I want to learn more and I want to do more for my patients. And I want that to be your focus vision source. But oh, by the way, please make sure whatever we do is going to yield a healthy, profitable practice. And then I'll roll up my sleeves and join you. So it's long-winded, but I, I just it's really important that we talk about this because the, the franchise model is really the F word, right? That's we don't we never like to bring it up even because we don't really run a franchise. We don't force anyone to put our name on the walls, on the doors and their signage. We don't make them look and feel the same. We don't have a playbook. Right, right. But we have a gold standard. Yeah. And that you know, that gold standard is so important in the way that we care for patients and the way so, that we care for patients. I love you brought up the F word because, I, you know, I'm a member of a franchise. I'm a franchise owner, the EOS franchise that, that allows me to perform that part of the practice. And yeah. there was a ton of resistance in the community when we made that switch. And, you know, and it's um, franchising is ominous and it's got its own dark, not dark side, but just certainly overhead, at least mm-hmm. we we'll call it overhead. But then private equity, like that's another form of F word. And what I've discovered, and it was a big shock to me because I've known you long enough to know that that's where I got a lot of this, you know, private equity. Oh my, that's like, you said that out loud. Oh my God. Like, you know, it's like <laughs> people can hear this. Sheesh. <laughs> but a lot of my early interviews, the first thing, the very first thing that would say the secret of their success was their use of private equity. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have to unpack this. What is going on here? And what I discovered, I'll come to believe rather, is that what private equity is, is a lot like money in this raw set. It's, un, it's undefined potential to do something powerful. Private equity, money, resources are, are horsepower and ability to de-risk something. And where private equity goes wrong formulaically is without a clear compass of what the something is. And so all the organizations and all the leaders I talked to who were like raving about their private equity experience all had one thing in common, and that was a very clear purpose of what they were trying to do and why they needed to de-risk and what they were going to do with that money that made it all work. And so I, this franchise, for example, it's a means. It was It's a legally required structure for right. what you are trying to do here. And so if you're morally opposed to private equity or morally opposed to a franchise, that's a tactical thinking. We got to figure out, like, what are you trying to do and figure out, is there a way to give it some horsepower that doesn't compromise the actual mission, right? And that's the fear. That's the fear of anybody who's bringing in these sort of tainted words like, but I'm going to sell my soul. And I, I, from my seat, I've not been in the business and I'd love your perspective because you're in the seat of, of running a franchise like a franchise organization. 
Like, I don't think you have to sell your soul to the devil. I think you just have to have really that much more clear conviction about what you're trying to do. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, I, I can honestly tell you when our practitioners fear entering vision source because of the franchise model, and they speak to all of our members who say, wait, I hold a hundred percent equity in my practice. No one comes in here and telling me how to practice. No one has for 20, 20 plus years, whatever they've been in the organization. One, we can dispel that myth very quickly. But the other is they believe the only way to be successful is to mimic some model. And in fact, to your point, our franchise model has always been more about protection from sharing of ideas and marketing together and buying together across the 50 state lines. That's the only way to do that legally. It's really not a good idea to do it otherwise. Right, right. But, yeah. And if know, nothing else, like in the U.S., it was like, if we don't become a franchise, we are going to get sued. We don't have a choice because of the way we are. We, like, we have to right. do it. That's right. And so the way we set up organization to market together to, to all that, we had to be a franchise model. But from the very beginning, we always said the franchise will deliver resources that allow you to reach your full potential, that to enable you, not allow you, but to give you the tools that you need based on your goals, mission, your environment, your practice culture. We honor that. We honor the individual practice owner because we know that if we're able to give them the resources they need and they can follow their mission to your point, we end up with a healthier practice in that community that's extremely relevant to that community. If I took my Charlotte, North Carolina ideas to a small town, say in Nebraska, it may not work. And we know that. And I think the key is people aren't different. The world isn't different. But what makes businesses so successful is when you have a sense of who you are in that community, a sense of belonging to that community, a cultural connection, your values are aligned you really start to see that the community says, I love this practice, this person, this healthcare system, because they know who I am and they know how I should be treated. Transplant them somewhere else, they may not be as happy. So it's really important for us to preserve the culture of the business without interfering with it. Yeah, that kind of goes to one of the pillars of what I think drives successful practices. And one of the is deliver massive value. And that is, this, and I, I believe that's where you, you do this work around purpose. And I think that all businesses need to do that. But in, in the healthcare sphere, it's, we're talking about health. Like you got a lot of levers to pull, right? You could, some form of ability to see, hear, cure blindness, prevent, you know, treat cancer. You know, we, we got massive value to work with. And, you know, I, I, at the risk of, because I think what I said and what you said are actually totally compatible. You were, you were challenging me on that. I do not feel like you went the other direction. I think that if, if you were trying to take the friction out of being a great business, somebody who wants to be great at business is a great match for that, right? Because <laughs> they're like, right. we can go even faster. And so if you're trying to deliver massive value, anything you can do to remove the barriers to the plumbing side of the business so I can get back to how can I help more people more deeply and clarify that message is a way to deliver more and more value where people are just want you in the community and you're happy to be there and you're profitable, right? Because profit follows value. And if you're worried about your profit seeming too high and your pricing to seem, seeming too high, my advice is always the same. Deliver more value. Make people that much more thrilled to have spent $700 on a very expensive, specific contact lens that takes your headache, headaches away. That kind of thing. Right. 
No, and I and I agree with you. What I didn't complete in my thought process earlier was when you deliver information, when you deliver incredible programs that you feel can unlock a practice's potential by taking away a lot of the friction in the private practice space, and you see adoption at the 65, 85% rate, you start to say to yourself, boy, there's two things at play here. One, there's a great deal of trust in the leadership and in the organization at the ground level. There's a great deal of trust because who else would do that? Why would people adopt something at that rate? And second, you have to have pretty good business acumen to actually execute on it because we are not in the business telling them how to do it. We will create the program, we'll create the intellectual property around it, we'll create the know-how, and we will share with them why it's important. But it takes a special doc to actually be able to execute on that and the practice level. And I think that is the culture that we built. Maybe it's infectious. Maybe because they look around and they say, hey, if John can do it, and he's gone from one location to five, and he has this massive opportunity to grow and continue to grow, and he's happy, and vision sources behind that, maybe that's where I need to be as well. And it becomes that mentorship that we see at the local level. So I just get really proud of the fact that our doctors have rolled up their business sleeves and said, I am in fact running a business, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I'm not running a business first, right? And I think it's a really important thing because the industry started saying these things like, you should just realize you're running a business, not be ashamed of it. Well, who's ashamed of it? No one's ashamed of it. We need to be profitable. We need to make sure these businesses are growing. But shouldn't we think about the patient's well-being and outcome first? Shouldn't we create the things around us that make me sleep better at nighttime knowing as a doctor I have delivered my heart? I've delivered everything I have to the patient base that I care for, and they in turn are super loyal and they help us grow. And we share that message of, you know, the doctor-patient relationship is also the relationship of a business to a community. And it's aligned. Yeah, yeah I love that. And, and I, I might, at the risk of sounding contradictory to that, We'll see where I land. One of my earliest clients was a home healthcare company, and they were all all nurses running that company. They owned it, ran it. And what I thought was so amazing was, man, these people really understood business. They understood that. And what was really evident is they had gotten so good at it because of one reason. They could see clearly that the path to delivering amazing best-in-class home healthcare was that they had to master that. They weren't – they didn't – they did – they did not study business as their first thing and try to figure out, well, I guess we can do some money, make some money in healthcare. It was the opposite. They were healthcare pra pra you know, practitioners, wanted to provide acute in-home in care for all the weirdest cases and hardest and the most difficult ones to take care of. And, and they saw somewhere in their line, like, for us to be able to do that, we got to be great at business. And they were, and they sold, and it was great. It was amazing. I love that story. But the language, I believe, and this maybe this is semantical, I think one of the pillars is to run it as a business first. Because you must understand that profit does follow value. And if you're not profitable, you're not driving value. And make that formula push you back into, all right, why are you here? And if you are not clear on the value in your community, then you better sort of hold your hair standard to the business standard. Like, you're, you're not profitable. You're not growing. That means by definition, you're not taking care of patients like you should. Right. So wake up and deliver that value because you're here for a reason. Well, so I love that. And I love the challenge on that. And I've gone 360 on that. Let me tell you, it has been interesting. I have gone completely patient first, then went to business first, then went to patient <laughs> first. And here's where I am on that. So 
the interesting dynamic there for me is when you're in optometry, it is a very interesting model in that there is a significant retail component to optometry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So unlike our colleagues who are, let's say, primary care doctors, right, who may have some interaction beyond the care that could be viewed as retail, but I doubt it, not very much, some, nutraceuticals, things like that maybe. But mm-hmm. yeah, what I find interesting is that optometry very quickly can get hijacked if the business is ahead of the professional patient care side. And when I say that, I mean the retail side of it. So one of the things that the industry was doing was trying to get doctors to understand the importance of leveraging the retail space first before the care. In North America, patients don't go to the eye doctor because they want to buy glasses. By and large, they go to the eye doctor because they want comprehensive eye care. And if they have visual needs, they need to get them, they'll get them there. But the promise of the practice is that I will care for you as a patient first. Mm-hmm. And then whatever needs you have, we will deliver. Well, there's been all this push toward retail engagement with patients. And practitioners who are in private space were told, you better be like them. Yeah, yeah. You better be like the players who are selling at the mall and in the boxes that look like private practice, but they're not. And very quickly, we realize that is absolutely the worst thing we can do at the private practice level. See, I think that's a good example when the tactics start to over, overwhelm the strategy, because right. I, I do think it's, you know, and actually to expand the conversation about primary care, for example, primary care seems, oh, it's, well, taking a step back, there are two main levers you pull in, in healthcare, and that is efficiency through cost reduction, because you're in the lane of insurance and traditional care, or you're adding more value. And that, and that whole lane is very broad. And so to that point, if you, we're going to add more value, right? You show up kind of a Walgreens model, you were going to maximize your per visit experience. So like you're, you're here for a half an hour. How many things can I sell you while you're here? We're going to get you all the way from film to batteries to chips to, to prescriptions and everything you possibly need while you're here and make it super convenient. So we're going to maximize the value. But then you get into the tactics. Okay. It's about the frame boards. It's about like the most, it's something about that retail brand or the tactic pulls you away from like, no, no, I didn't say selling more shit. I said, add more value. <laughs> So take a step back. What do they need? And so in primary care, people are buying direct primary care on a membership cash pay deal all the time. They can't even get it. They're like, for 99 bucks a month, I got somebody I can talk to 24 hours a day, telemedicine, same doctor, 99 bucks a month. I'll do that. Not a problem. So people are buying value and it's not, it's not Ralph Lauren. It's value. Right. That's right. I love that. What a great way of looking at it. You know, I, I nothing to add to that other than the fact that I, I 100% agree with you that if a patient-doctor relationship at the private practice level is not about the next 15 bucks but the next 15 years of the patient's life, and if you are driving the conversation toward bettering the patient's life, bettering the quality of life, improving their health, improving their well-being and the way that they engage the world and their performance in the world – then it's really easy to deliver on those promises with products that could complete that cycle. Like as a doctor, if I talk to a patient who tells me they have these hobbies and they have these needs and they have these pains and these desires, and as a practitioner, if I am a robot and I just go, I can tackle one of those, ma'am, I got got to see another patient. I just, here you go. Here's some eyewear. Have a nice day. You start to see this practice sort of dwindle over time, 
And, you know, patients will start looking elsewhere for their care. So we're not driving value that way. What we believe today is that if we look at a patient's lifetime and we look at their needs and wants, and you start to engage them as a practitioner about where we will take their quality of life, their performance at work and what have you, the business strategy is super clear. You can prescribe what the patient needs and they trust you. And it's just a beautiful cycle to see our practitioners take advantage of that conversation. So no, I'm with you hundred percent. It's about adding value to the relationship and the engagement. So I want to, let's go a little deeper on your views on this. You're in, in this conversation with two hats, I think, and yes. correct me for maybe, maybe more, maybe actually if we can go personal, like your personal journey, actually it adds some to mention that, but as a small practice owner, that's, you know, as an optometrist trying to grow a practice in your community, and then as somebody who's speaking on behalf of Vision Source, trying to add value to thousands of smaller practices. And so, you know, let's switch hats a little bit. Like, you know, from your, I mean, which, first of all, where do you identify most? If I say, all right, now, which, which hat is kind of the one that's the default for you these days? Yeah, the default for me is focused on the well-being of my doctors in the network. That's okay. the default hat. Yeah. So you're the advocate for the community. You're the voice. You know, you speak on behalf of how many doctors? How many doctors are you trying to advocate for? We're just under 5,000 doctors who believe in the network of about 3,100 practices. Okay. It's a lot of people yeah. to take care of. So it's an important mission. It feels heavy, if that's what you're asking. <laughs> I feel yeah, like I'm yeah. shrinking by the day. But yeah, so, you know, I default to that because I was called on years back by the founder, Glenn, and at the, at the time, a current CEO at the time, Jim Greenwood, to consider taking a bigger role in the organization because I think they felt that I had a passion for our doctors and for private practice that went beyond the Amir, the private practitioner. They sensed there was something there that I didn't identify myself. And it took me mm -hmm. two years of conversation with them to say, are you, are you talking about me? Like I literally had to dodge the finger when they would point at me and say, I don't know who you're talking about, but I, that's not me. I am the guy who owns two practices, four docs and is growing really fast and happy. And anyway, so long story short, I took the position because knowing that Glenn was going to take on a different role and, and I never thought I would feel the weight of the legacy, the, mm. the, the mission of Vision Source, to own it in such a way that I probably dream about my work and Vision Source and the future and my fears all too way too often. It is, it's in my soul. And it's a weird thing to say, but it really is. It's, it's hard to, this, it's hard to dissociate myself from this mission that we're on. And that is to save the soul of private practice. The mission is for us to say, can we define what it means for a doctor to own a practice? And why does that matter? Can we make sure we're clear on the importance of all critical decisions of the business are made by the doctor and his or her appointed people? And they could be business people outside of the practice in some scenarios. But as long as the majority and the plane has to land on the word of the doctors who care for the patients, I think we're okay. I think we'll win. I believe my profession, optometry, deserves private practice because private practice has been the tip of the spear for innovation, for pushing the envelope with expansion of scope. 
private practice serves politically, serves in every facet of our profession, but also I think entrepreneurship allows for us to make significant investments. I don't know if your audience knows this or not, but optometry practices are freaking expensive to own because we not only carry a ton of inventory of stuff, which is all just stuff we're selling, I get that, but equipment. I mean, we have high-tech equipment in my office, probably darn near a million dollars worth of high-tech equipment. I mean, it's really difficult to run these practices. So why do we make those investments? We make those investments because we know that it will improve the patient outcome, the patient experience. It will improve the way the practice can deliver that service to more people. I'm so passionate about private practice because I can honestly tell you, I have practice elsewhere. I have practice in other settings. Yeah. And I know where my heart is. That doesn't mean we're right. Doesn't mean we're the only ones who are right. But certainly, I know what we need to fight for. Well, you said if so. I was going to dig into the soul of private practice and what winning and the innovation aspect. I'm just reminded of when I switched dentists at one point. Part of what made me switch was that I, <laughs> I think I was with this guy long enough that I was like, "Man, this is the same equipment you bought when I started like 20 years ago." That when I switched dentists, they were like, "Yeah, just have them email over your X-rays," and I and they were like, "You mean come pick them up?" <laughs> and so I had to go pick them up. And it was all that to say in that space, it's a choice. Those were both private practices. I went from one place that's super digital and very like feels pretty traditional at the same time. In one place, it was just like 0% innovation, like, you know, films, you know, here, you, let's go put it in the envelope. And this was not like some super ancient guy. This is somebody who was, you know, not that much older than me, maybe even similar age. And so I don't think it's a, it's a foregone conclusion that everybody's feeling entrepreneurial, that a million dollars with equipment, like that's a, to your point, like, you got to believe you're going to get at least a million and one dollars back on that because <laughs> you're going to probably a lot more than that, like way more than that, because you're going to be on that note for what, 20 years? It is an interesting thing when you ask and we do. We ask our practitioners to stay on the cutting edge of technology because we believe wholeheartedly that collectively we can elevate the care that optometrists provide in our space. And our membership at Vision Source specifically, just to give you an idea, sub 20 years ago, as we started to see a change in the laws that govern optometry, legislative laws, we started to see Glenn's vision of moving optometry toward medical. And he said, the first step is you have to educate yourself. So we got really involved in educating our doctors and making sure that they were doing all the, the right things to position themselves with the right knowledge, you know, let me let me just take a sidestep here. My professor in optometry school said this to me, and I'll never forget it. He said, doctors of any kind, doesn't matter what it is, they learn like this while they're in school. I hope my orientation is not right. They're going, <laughs> they're going up and to the right. And then it goes plateau about five years after school, and it pretty much stays there. And they'll practice yeah. like that for the rest of their lives. That has haunted me. Yeah. I have, so we have- It's a healthcare reality. Any kind of repetitious healthcare medical practice, actually, those early years are your best. And it's only decline after that if you are not pushing into out of your comfort zone into something that pushes you to, to raise your skills. Exactly. So the idea of investing in technology isn't in any way to take- the care out of the doctor's hands is actually you must have the right knowledge, both from a business perspective and also from just a care perspective and the medical knowledge in order to be able to implement that technology properly to drive value to the patients and to be able to use that as a marketing tool, right, for people to tell that story and to understand it and to be able to help you grow your business. So 
saving the soul of private practice is simply an interesting way of saying, how do we evolve private practice to not only be aligned with big corporations who are pushing optometry in a direction, I mean, as far as technology, so we can align it. So they're not, they're not better as they're just marketing more, right? We have the same technology, if not better, but also how do we then make sure that we're not in competition, that we're still elevating the care. So we're not plateaued as a profession as, and can patients trust going to a small business, a small practice and know that they're receiving the best care possible. The gold standard, I think, is a way that Jim coined it. Truly, Vision Source is aiming for that in the way that we educate our doctors and staff. You used the phrase earlier, we, so we can win. We want to win. What is winning and what is losing? <laughs> losing is easy to define. Losing is continuing to see an erosion, the number of practices that are private, right? That's one way that we're going to see a profession lost if we start to see us become the pharmacy model. Losing is also when technological advancements and innovation live outside of private practice. I think the more we can leverage and utilize everything that is constantly evolving around us to be able to better care for patients, the more I think optometry will win, the more I think private practice will win of any profession. I don't care where you are. You've got to leverage technology so that you're ahead of it and not behind it. Everyone's so scared for AI. Everyone's so scared for automation. Everyone's so scared about the digital world we're going to live in. And and yet some of my favorite darn things in my practice and some of the favorite ways for me to care for my patients were seen as the end of optometry 20 years ago, mm-hmm. 10 years ago. For example? For example. Let's take the simp- most simple example. A machine that you cannot go into a private practice today and not find is called an auto-refractor. It's simply a, a tool that basically automatically kind of tells the doctor what, they believe, what it believes is the refractive error or the amount of prescription the patient has. 30 years ago, it was, it was called the end of optometry because they mm-hmm. believed people would just do auto-refractions and hand someone a pair of glasses. Fast mm-hmm. forward, Optos, which is a tool that takes this massive panoramic ultra-wide field photo of the back of the eye and can do a really good job of seeing the back of the patient's eyes. People said, well, look, if you do this as an optometrist, you're no longer a doctor. You're just using a picture and you're not doing your part. And today it's ubiquitous, right? I mean, it enhances the care. You now have a digital photo you can compare over years. It's helped me save lives, literally. Mm -hmm. Changes in pigment I would have never been able to describe. It had been words. Mm -hmm. Talk about the way that we see data being aggregated, right? People keep thinking people are going to steal our patients with the way the data is aggregated. Yet, where I sit, we leverage data that is being shared by our partners so that we can Mm. be more relevant to our doctors because now we understand who they're seeing. We can actually produce better programs that are more relevant to the patient base that they're seeing. It's just a cool way to look at it, right? I'm not saying everything that's new and exciting is always good. I mean, there are some bad players in the industry who leverage technology against us and against the profession, in my opinion, commoditizing it. But <clears throat> I love what you said. Uh, take me back to the pharmacy model. What uh, Unpack that more. What's wrong with the pharmacy model? How, you know, what's the dystopian view of the future? So I'll, I'll say that pharmacists who used to be mostly mom and pops, right? And over time, you saw what happened was the corporate entities came in and basically leveraged the convenience of being on the right hand or left hand side of the road in the major intersections and 
eventually just took the business away from the mom pop shops and the solo practitioners and the private pharmacies. Now, do private pharmacies exist today? Yes. Are they uber competitive? Yes. Do they have niche ways of addressing a need in the market? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's the fight that pharmacy's in, right? Trying to elevate itself and get out of that. Everyone must go work behind the counter at a, you know, one of the pharmacy chains. Optometry is really potentially in the same position because of our retail component where you can see there's a thirst for the big boxes to come in and just gut private practice and just say, you know, you don't need that. You can just come here and get everything you want along with your diapers and your milk. Mm -hmm. So the fight mm -hmm. for private practice is can we keep practitioners responsible to the patient as opposed to responsible to some person outside the lane who's telling you the numbers you have to produce in order to be successful. I think that's where you break the sanctity of the patient-doctor relationship is the doctor should not be thinking, I need to sell this many things. I need to prescribe this many things. I need to do this many procedures in order to satisfy someone out there who pays my check. In fact, I think that's practicing without a license. I yeah, think someone I, outside I, the lane is practicing without a license. I don't disagree. I think that the, that's not the worst case scenario, though. I think, the, I think that if you've got somebody who is in financially incented, you've got somebody who's hungry and feels some agency in the process where it gets even worse is in truly in the pharmacy model. Like the pharmacist is not moving revenue. The pharmacist mm -hmm. is, a, is a cog in a factory, is a machine. Mm -hmm. They just do inputs and outputs. There is no agency. They don't influence anything. You can you replace them with a, the next one. And there is no impact of the input or output of a Walgreens as a result. Yeah, that is horrible. That's a horrible realization, and I appreciate you pointing that out. You know, you think about these things when you're sitting there watching them behind the counter, but I never, I never verbalize it. I, I refuse to even think of it as a practitioner because that's a farm D probably with a doctorate degree who deserves far more than just simply being that person who must touch the bottle. Otherwise, mm -hmm. they're in trouble. Yep. It's compliance and nothing. And there's no other value. It's ultimate commoditization. Mm. And so, I, so I, I think capitalism is great, right? It's, it, but well, the, th the thing that's important to note, and this was a big light bulb for me, it's, I don't know why I read or somebody pointed out, but capitalism is not a, an ethical system. It's an economic model. Like yeah. you need both, right? You need yeah. both. You need a moral system. You need a system yes. of ethics. And do not look to capitalism to provide it for you. And stop vilifying capitalism for not I having it because it's never supposed to do that. You I need a system of, of of morals and ethics and outcomes and purpose that comes from an entirely different thing. And so, capitalism and incentives. Like, let's at least acknowledge that if there's profit involved, there's agency. And if like if I can incent you. That creates the uh, a context to say, all right, what define for me right and wrong? Can we move the incentives around and create different outcomes? Because at least if you got that, you got levers to pull. If that goes away, that's the problem in communism. There's no agency anymore. There, you, there's no room for morality, no, no room for right and wrong. You, you don't even yeah. have a choice. Listen, it's brilliant. <laughs> I'm 100% aligned with you on the fact that we cannot use capitalism as a tool to discuss ethics of care. I, yeah. By no means. And what I want to go back to my statement, I see my own practitioners who were in Vision Source, who were part of my network, who have taken on a position of, you know, riding out the last few years of their career under some of the private equity players. And what's really interesting to me is behind door conversations, they feel strongly that they no longer have the ability to prescribe the way they 
want to because they know the community still. They're still part of that community. They still see John, who they've seen for 25 years, and they still feel a sense of awareness of John's needs. And if they were to make a suggestion that John would go for it because they trust me, but maybe that's not the best thing for John right now, even if it comes in my own financial peril that I don't make that recommendation. But that's a decision that Mm -hmm. a doctor should make as an entrepreneur, but also as a practitioner. And those are two separate things combined in one. But when they feel they're going to be punished for not making that in some way, if it's punitive, then I think that's where you start to see a change in doctors' behaviors that I think is, is, I think it's atrocious, honestly, in my opinion. I have incentives. I do, everybody will admit to that. Mm-hmm. Every doctor has incentives in the room that like, hey, I want to I wanna deliver value to this patient and I hope that they go for it because that makes my practice better. That makes my business better. But I have to believe that it's still your conscious, your ethics, your morals at play here. It's the way you believe the world should run. So it's your decision. You can't blame someone outside the door. Maybe I'm wrong, but I, I, I just I struggle. I struggle mightily with the idea that doctors should be told how many of something they should do by the end of the month. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think it's a good without an answer. I think you have to answer that question. What what does the quantification? What are the costs of efficiency and inefficiency? And, I, and I, it goes back to purpose. I mean, I, I I have the answers for that in forms of questions. And that is, what are we trying to do here? And it's always a bigger picture impact than this the one transaction, which is when we get kind of confused with tactics versus strategy. You know, we know that the good guarantees, good ethics lead to massive losses in a moment that pay back over the, you know, I, 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 this deal went badly. It's a $5,000 bathroom remodel, and I ended up paying $20,000 back to the homeowner because we busted a pipe, or $200,000 we busted a pipe, and like we lost money on that tra- transaction. That's bad business. Well, we know, we know intuitively, like that it's good business when everybody sees you do that, hopefully authentically, hopefully not yes. for a fact, hopefully yeah. like, you know, it's the right thing to do. And when yeah. people tell the story that like, you know, this guy, did the, this company did the right thing, this owner does the right thing. And I think we always have to keep going back to that. And we start a business with a purpose. And and that's kind of like the essence of behind run it as a business first is that you're not going to get paid for not delivering value. So what's the value? And it's big. It's not a transaction. It's long term, maybe generational, maybe well beyond. It might be infinite game stuff because I I was kind of going to go there with the winning with you earlier. That's, you know, it's really not a finite game. I mean, sometimes it feels like there's a finite game when the market shifts. Like, you know, there's a massive wave of roll-ups going on, you know, which is kind of actually happening, right? And so it feels like the game is finite. Like, we got a window. we got to preserve some things. But really, once that wave is crashed, it will be what's the next set of waves that we're going to go have to – the infinite game is how do we continue to level up and, and make the challenge? And any losses we had in the short term, if we took those losses for the right reasons, to, t- to take sacrifices for the greater good of patient care and innovation – those losses will be as long as we're back in the game, as long that's the infinite game. If you're familiar with Simon Sinek's approach to this and all the game theory, you know, it's like the rules of being an infinite game are don't get knocked out of the game. Yeah. You know, it's a finite game as it ends at the end of the fourth quarter and either win or lose. Yeah. But in yeah. this kind of work, what we're doing here, it's infinite. The only rule is don't get kicked out. Don't get knocked out. Get a chance to get back in the game and hand the baton to somebody else when you're not a player anymore. I love that. And I am very familiar. I'll tell you an interesting thing. As I think about the long game for me and for Vision Source and our doctors in the network, 
we always remind them that your practices represent hope for a rapidly aging population who's going to need a lot more eye care over the next 20, 30 years than ever before. I mean, millennials are 40 plus now, right? I mean, you think about this population that is so rapidly hitting 50, 60, 70, 80 right now. Optometry has such an incredible responsibility to the community because there aren't enough ophthalmologists. There are very few ophthalmologists in any rural areas. They're all in urban and they're too few. Optometry has to step up and to deliver medical eye care to an aging population that trusts us, that has seen us. We said, we'll see you cradle the grave. You have an opportunity. So you're absolutely right. Don't get knocked out. Don't get caught up in the tactics of the moment. Right now, your promise is the value you drive to the families that you see. You know, I never see a person. I see a tribe. And I, and I really mean this. This has been a, re a realization of mine. We're tribal people. I see people of a community, and those people tend to be very interconnected. And so when you do the right thing for one, it tends to resonate. And you tend to see it not in referrals always. Sometimes it's in the conversations that I have now 25 years in practice and the way people say, hey, your practice did this for this patient. And she told us about it at church. And it's an interesting mm -hmm. dynamic, right? I mean, it's you realize at that moment, that was a sacrifice at the moment, but man, did it drive unbelievable value to the practice and to the community, right? Equally. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to something you said that has stayed with me my entire adult life. I called a company locally in town and told them that my dog was locked in a car and it was hot. And North Carolina hot, it is, it's Amazon hot, right? It is like 100 degrees and 100% humidity. And I had this great big 85-pound dog that I rescued, and he locked himself in the car. And I had an old car you can actually lock yourself in. Very and smart to lock I, the door. I, I mean, I literally was running full speed trying to oh, break the window, and I couldn't do it. And I called the company, and they said, we're on our way. It wasn't like, oh, it'll be 45 minutes. Like, we're on our way. And they showed up. And the guy shows up, unlocks the door, gets in his car, and drives off. That's it. That's it. Never said a word. Wow. No, he said a word. He said, is he violent? <laughs> but he might be. By the time he comes out of there, right? And he's like, okay. He's like, I I'll get him out. And like, he did his job. He got in the car. He said, glad we could help. And got in the car and drove off. I kid you not. Never, ever ask for a dollar. Never give us an invoice. Didn't give us a call. Didn't say, hey, if somebody else needs it, tell them the story. Yeah. But I've probably told that story 200 times. And mm -hmm. it's Papa Lock, which is like a, you know, I think it's a wow. chain and they probably have that. They have that as a company policy for the child or a dog. Wow. Just do it. I think that's just cool. It's just such a cool example of a company that has taught its people to have this mentality of do the right thing and it will pay off. We probably lost the job while you were doing that. So you want to get tactical on that for a second, mm -hmm. because that's one of those things that leaves people teary eyed and brought tear to my eye a little bit. It's, it's real. It's emotional. I think a lot of visionary leaders want to be like that in all things at all times and run out of ways there. And they can't figure out like what's generous and what's foolish. Mm -hmm. and, and that's a very reasonable question. And I've learned that, you know, when you, if you compare all the cool companies and you try to be 
all the cool things of all the cool companies. You've got dogs at work. You're giving free stuff away. You've got crazy guarantees. You've got an unlimited vacation policy. You've got, you know, cross, you know, crossover jobs. You know, you get to cross train and, you know, get to travel, work from home. And it's like, eventually there's no business, right? There's like, I have no employees. Everyone's getting paid a ton of money to do nothing. And everybody's got, like, everybody's got an Xbox at their house. I don't, we don't actually do anything. That doesn't work. So you have to go back to what are we here to do? Is there one or two things that really we can feel good about that actually one thing can tell the story more yeah. completely than a half a dozen other things? And that is one of those things that, that does that. It's memorable for you. It's easy for them to understand. They've written down. And it's something that I assume because I've not worked with them. I don't know. But the companies I work with, when something like that kind of resonates, everybody goes, yeah, yeah, we're going to do that. It kind of galvanizes like... Yeah, we want to do that. And this is going to be a privilege to do something like that. And it's going to help people see us for who we really are. And that's not easy work. So so I guess the tactical part of this is like, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's a sacrifice. And it's not some gimmick. Like, And and this is back to like my first interview in this this rebrand was Joe Galati. He's a liver doctor and he's a passion. He's very passionate about people living healthy lives. And he has this thing about fresh food and he gives away fruit and vegetables at the office. And it seems <laughs> random, but it's like, it's him. And so he's like, look, I just give away, you show up, I give you a care about, I take a picture with you and I give you a recipe and some squash oh, and you go wow. home and it's like, and we're weird and yeah, and live with it. <laughs> and so, I love it. So you, finding it's, there's a, it's an inner journey you have to have to get that cool thing. So don't skip that step. You've got to go into yourself and figure out like, what's one thing that really kind of tells how weird I am and I'm, and I can stop being ashamed of it. Oh man, I love that. And, and, you know, you're hundred percent right. Like for me thinking about vision source and the doctors that we serve and the size of the network, there's not one thing we don't teach that. Hey, here's a gimmick welcome to Moe's, right? right. It, none of that shit that no one cares about. Cause you can see right through it. We, we always talk about the patient's journey. Like what is the patient's journey and what does it mean? And how do we make sure that the gold standard is set? Not because we look alike, but because we care for our community. So we really hone in on this aspect of you are leaders in your community. You are responsible to your community. You're responsible to the care that's provided. So that's kind of at the vision source level. We try to make sure that we focus on something that is aligned with the hearts of our doctors, aligned with the hearts of our staff members, that it can be palpable, that if you go to a vision source practice, we hope that at a minimum, you would say those people care, right? And that's kind of been the journey we're on for the last 11 years, especially as we started to really think about the patient journey being a an important aspect of what we do together. Cause you know, people say, Oh, you're a buying group, huh, buying group, buying, buying is the lowest rung on the ladder of value. We drive. That is, we are a culture. We are a community that believes in something that makes us bind ourselves to vision source because it means something to us. It's not, there's no way to, you know what? It's funny. People actually make fun of it sometimes outside of vision source. And I actually laugh at the fact that they're making fun of it because it makes me realize that they don't get it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, so I have to say to myself, I have a lot of educating to do because this person obviously thinks we're just a buying group. Right. But at my practice level, I'll tell you a quick story. And it started with our practice manager. She did this. She said, I think the simplest way that we can show our patients that we care is to do what we always do. But like, let's just teach everybody to meet the patient. And I said, what do you mean? She goes, you know how many people scramble to get here to pick up their eyewear, contact lenses, to 
they're at a loss. They lost their eye contacts and they have a huge prescription. They can't get here. And I understand you can now call Uber and get over here. Thank goodness for that. <laughs> but but we made a decision that any of our staff members within reason and not putting themselves at risk could go to where the patient is. Hmm. And that's yeah. just been an interesting thing. We don't talk about it. We don't. We, don't, we just teach it at the beginning. Like, hey, yeah. if you feel like it's the right thing for you to do, just get in the car. We'll reimburse you for your mileage and all that stuff. Just go to the patient, get them what they need, and come back. And we don't we make a fuss of it. We don't post it. Some people say, well, you should market that. Why? It's for me. It's actually for the heart of my practice that I do it. It isn't. And, and that may be faulty thinking. I, I can accept the fact that there's some issues with not growing the practice if you don't do that. But I think those people will market us far more than if I talk about it myself. Yeah. So again, tactically, I would suggest that I, I like where you're, you got to figure out the ethos of that. You can poison it if it looks too artificial yeah. and too, but I Absolutely. do think you want to walk the, you want to run the traps on, are we leaving value on the table? Yes. Is there a, is there a way that we can make sure people know they can do this? Yeah. And, you know, it's like donations, you know, like if yeah. you, if you're the kind of person who donates, I I wear and or and, but you do it anonymously. That's a thing. That's a thing. But like you don't. You want to like? Are we doing donating to the max? Do we do a good job finding the opportunities? Yeah, you want to make sure you're not just wasting that contribution. So I, I think there's a a give and take of figuring out the formula. Don't self sabotage. Keep it true. Make sure you. I, I think by the formula is, are we leaving value for people on the table by keeping this too secret? And if right. we and if we and if we expanded the conversation, will we help more people? Then that's right. still your trigger. Yep, I agree. Well, look, man, the time has flown by. I told you we'd try to be done sooner than we are. I hope I'm not crushing the rest of your schedule. Did we miss anything that you wanted to cover today? I came into this just wanting to talk to my friend and thank you for the stimulating conversation. You got yeah, it me too, man. Yeah, no, we did, we did a lot, and that's that's I love this for that reason. What do you? What's you know? Obviously, you're a passionate guy. You kind of, that's how you got pulled into doing this sort of stuff. If you were to summarize your passion, your passionate plea, really, for entrepreneurial healthcare leaders, particularly those leaders, the people who are trying to make a difference, what, what's your passionate plea for them right now? You know, I think we may have said it a couple of times, and I'm going to reiterate it probably here, but I, I think it's so important that doctors are in a position of leadership that binds them with the business people around them that have the great ideas that are beyond what we learned in school and that the doctor leaders continue to keep their thumb on the pulse of the profession and their practitioners. And that beautiful balance that can be achieved if we put our heads together and we do the right thing for patients first, then our practices, then the profession, and then for our business, which I can guarantee will be really successful if you're watching out for the other stakeholders that are bigger than us. And I, I just think a big company on the right side of the fight is unstoppable. Absolutely. Well, look, man, if somebody wanted to keep up with you, what's going on in your world, how does somebody find you? Probably LinkedIn is the easiest way to find me. I think you're going to include that in the bottom like there, but it's yep. simple. It's Amir dot, I mean, dash Koshnevis on LinkedIn. Okay. We'll do that for sure, man. We will potentially have another conversation in the future. This is a, we got a lot to unpack this year as some of the framework and some of the fundamentals of what it is to be a well-led, well-scaled, high-value 
private practice across the disciplines, across the healthcare spectrum. So we may have you back to talk about more stuff in, in more detail as we get there. But man, I'm grateful for the time. The time flew by, like I said, I'm, I'm grateful for that and looking forward to seeing you again soon. Absolutely. Same here. Thank you for having me. So that's our time for today. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends, as I mentioned before. If you know, don't underestimate how few people who get value, you know, do subscribe. And that's the kind of misconception. People uh, people think that everybody just subscribes. And also the misconception is that people think that I'm gonna send you something or you're on some sort of list. I have no idea who subscribes. So if you like it, subscribe if you and that helps. That really helps people get access to the content. That's actually the cheat code to getting this in the hands of other people. Instead of forwarding this to your friends, you click the subscribe, makes it easier for people to find it. So we'll see you next time on Practice Freedom with me, Mark Henderson Leary.